Hey everybody, welcome back. Another episode on this Monday, September 25th. Another episode of the Mormon History Hoedown with me, Kara Burrell. So sometimes I am talking about other things that aren't Tim Ballard. Sometimes talking about other things that aren't related to Mormonism. That's not one of these days. So I am so excited for this episode to bring on a real church historian and wanted to say a quick thank you to everybody in the live chat. Thanks for showing up for this kind of impromptu live stream that I'm doing right now. So welcome everybody to the show, the one and only Benjamin Park. Hey, bud. Howdy, howdy. howdy. Glad to be here. Um, ben, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the, uh, to the audience. Let them know who you are. Sure. My name is uh, Ben Park. I uh, teach American religious history at Sam Houston State University. I'm the author of a, of a number of articles and books. Uh, and the book I'm most excited for right now uh, is my book, American Zion, A New History of Mormonism, which will be published uh, only three, four months from now. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I became familiar with you, Ben, uh, after reading Kingdom of Nauvoo and there's a, there's a few like uh, bingo card things of mine on my podcast. I have to bring up dogma. I use the word empathy a lot. And I say Ben Barking <laughs> changed my life. So good. So thanks for well, writing thank that. You. Your, your check's in the mail. I appreciate it. Yes. Yes. So uh, I ran into Ben and saw, met him for the first time at Sunstone a couple months ago and said, you have to come on my Mormon history hoedown and talk about history. And it just so happens that you wrote a really, really good article one of those articles where it's like, oh, I was hoping somebody would write this. <laughs> and then and then Ben showed up with it on Slate. So I thought that I would uh, bring Ben on and go over this article entitled, Don't Wait, Just... Okay. I love figuring things out in live stream. Boom. Yes. <laughs> All right. This is your work right here? Not this that's ad? Me. Well, yep, that's it. <laughs> Sound of Freedom. Tim Ballard is a star on the right. Why would his church denounce him? So this uh, came out, what, exactly one week ago? Yeah, last Friday. Or, la sorry, last Monday. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is conservative, but maybe not like this. Ooh, what a tagline. All right, shall we get into it? I thought we would just kind of read his article and we can expand upon a couple different things, especially because I was telling Ben before we started that I, I want to be the expert in the Rod Meldrum, Hannah Stoddard, uh, Book of Mormon Evidence Conference, the schism of the right of the of the Mormon Church, the ones that are Heartlanders, the ones who believe that the land of inheritance is in Florida, the ones who have the most literalist, traditionalist interpretation of Mormonism. That if this faction, this schism happens, where the right wingers go in one direction, because I was raised in it. I feel entitled that I should be able to research it till my dying day and tell people about it. So I'm really excited to get into this. And I also want to explain more about what Tim Ballard means by the American covenant, because he believes, and I am not exaggerating one bit. I have an episode coming out in the next couple of days of all of my Tim Ballard research. Oh, you guys are going to, you guys are in for it. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that I'm on fire. And he truly does believe that, uh, Ending sex trafficking of children is not a material wealth problem. It is a spiritual problem because of the thing that he calls 
the covenant, the American covenant. So we need to need to talk about why tens of millions of dollars are going into an organization that is funneled to somebody who believes that the best way to keep people, to keep children out of the most horrible atrocity and nightmare that they could face is through Mormonism. So and a lot of that's going to be covered Nephi. in my episode this week. And through Nephi. Don't forget about Nephi. Yeah, specifically Nephi, for some reason, probably those chiseling, chiseled abs. All right. So, all right. Uh, let's have you take us away. Do you want me to start reading it? Uh, sure. Well, maybe I'll just uh, highlight um, why I wanted to write this. Um, okay. When the news came out uh, about Tim Ballard the week before, um, I figured that this... Uh, I haven't been as devoted as you as putting in the hours to research this far right schism within Mormonism, but it definitely is something that um, has always fascinated me. In part because when I, when my book Kingdom of Nauvoo came out a few years ago, um, I went on a book tour. And uh, when I spoke at, a, at some large gatherings in Utah, almost without fail, I would have someone in the Q&A period ask me questions that I could tell were taken directly from this right-wing conspiracy alt-mainstream message of Mormonism, whether it be doubting that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, whether it be this declension narrative that church leaders today aren't as spiritually in tune with the past, or whether it be the mainstream institution has uh, assimilated too much in a mainstream culture and has lost its doctrinal core and kind of its pure origins. And so like that's just always been swirling in my mind. And you see these new celebrities crop up, whether it be Tim Ballard or Glenn Beck or Rod Meldrum or others who, who are able to participate in this right-wing ecosystem of conspiratorial thinking that's explicitly against not just mainstream Mormonism, mainstream America, right? This world of alternative facts of the American right wing. And this is one example of many that I think is significant how we can use Mormonism to understand American culture and American religion more broadly, uh, because this is a much larger phenomenon going on with all these people questioning traditional narratives and offering their own, you know, Herculean uh, superhero man uh, attempts to reform society. And so, yeah, so that, so when the Tim Ballard stuff came out, especially was the moment when Glenn Beck responds to it and when Tim Ballard records his video next to a Revolutionary War monument in Boston, that I realized, all right, I got to write something about this. So I, I wrote up this essay in, in just a couple hours on Sunday afternoon um, and sent it in. And I was very glad that that slate took it. So that's a little bit of the background of, of, the, of the essay. Thank you for that. All right. You win. You're probably a better expert than me. Dang it. <laughs> not, not on the route, not on the Rod Meldrum stuff. That, that stuff. Like I, I, I take a 30,000 foot view way up here. I am not willing to put in the hours and hours that you have in watching their heartland theory stuff. Russ Barlow. Do you know who Russ Barlow is? I you don't. I'm completely ignorant on that one. I cannot wait. I cannot wait till someone just pays me to talk about the heartlanders all day long. That the, their whole clan, their whole faction, 
Well, so yes, they have their own alternative version of how they view Mormonism. And, 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 what's, and what's so fascinating about that group is like you can see at the core this anxiety that this American covenant version of Mormonism has been losing its place in an increasingly bureaucratized, increasingly global, increasingly mainstream Mormon institution. Like, I know it's crazy for many people to think that there are people who assume that Mormonism has become too liberal, but that is true for so many people. And, and it's quite crazy. So Seth yeah. Perry, a wonderful scholar of American religion, once wrote one my favorite essay on the Heartlanders, uh, where he basically said that it's not a coincidence that you get this resurgent belief of sacralizing the American land, right? The Book of Mormon had to right. take place in the United States of America at the very time that America is being displaced in the sacred geography of Mormonism, right? That Mormonism is becoming much more global, that Mormonism is trying to uh, appear less American, although in my book, I argue they've never really divorced themselves, divorced themselves from that, but that you have these heartlanders who, just like many American right-wingers who are like, oh, these people who are apologizing for America and are losing the significance of America, um, the Heartlanders are drawing from that anxiety and they're trying to mm -hmm. recapture this Mormonism that's not only doctrinally pure, but inherently American. And so they're creating this, you know, Heartlander model that they believe is at the heart of this American form of Mormonism. Right on. Everybody give it up for the professor. <laughs> Right on. Please keep your uh, comments coming in. And if you have any questions, I'll throw them up on screen. Um, I thought actually a good place to start that since we brought that up, why don't we go straight to a quick, a quick example of what we mean by Heartlander and what we mean by this, this ultra conservative faction of the church that you will want to know what they believe if they do start a civil war, they've got the guns, they've got the ammunition, they are preppers, <laughs> they usually like, you know, MLMs, they'll have the, the tinctures for you, the essential oils. If you need something that works moderately well, that smells good. Um, they will have, uh, bus buses to take you different places when they're not using them to travel around Boston and all of my parents have gone on all of the, the Heartlanders tours around the country to see the mounds of the Indians. If you don't know what I'm talking about means that Mormonism was founded on this idea that like, hey, these Indians didn't make this. It was our story, not theirs. So my parents, you know, they pay Rod Meldrum and these are heartlanders to take them around. So it is its own little clan. They have their own little identity. So if they start breaking off, you'll know them by their their buses and their guns and and a couple other things that I want to share right now like this. So I um, have been making a bunch of um, Instagram posts lately that are kind of in preparation for this big video that I'll be releasing this week on a compilation of all of my research. So this is called five things to know about Tim Ballard's Mormon beliefs that I learned from watching hours of his speeches to Mormon crowds. I have a pass to the, I have a behind the paywall of the Rod Meldrum Book of Mormon Evidence Conference site. Rod Meldrum has 95 of my dollars, so, but I can cannot be like the, the brain cells, people say, yes, they could, they could die, but it's, it's really interesting. Cause I think it's important to know what these people believe. 
So for one, Tim Ballard believes the atonement of Mormon Jesus Christ is the only way to truly heal a child after being sex trafficked. Any thoughts, Ben? Yeah, so I think that uh, this plays into, in, in one way, this broader dynamic within not just this radical right-wing Mormonism, but far-right thinking in America writ large, that uh, the reason for societal decay is based in this declension narrative of secularism ruining everything. And mm -hmm. that the institutions that are that are allegedly out there to save us, to help us, are actually doing harm because they've lost the divinity that's part of a uh, you know godly society. And so you have Tim Ballard, and further, it also kind of cuts through the morass of saying that the world is offering too complex of answers. It's a response to the world becoming so layered and multifaceted and difficult and complicated to understand. And in, in a world of so much gray area, sometimes a straightforward black and white doctrine of sin is the problem, righteousness and the atonement is the solution, is a very satisfying idea. I mean, that's why politicians often go to these baseline uh, uh, principles, because it can, because punchlines are important, right? That's memes and, and the catchphrases, those are the things that draw an audience. And so you have things like Tim Ballard saying, you know what, all this evil that you know is going on in the world, the only thing that's going to be solving this is Jesus Christ and the atonement. And second, a righteous man warrior like myself who looks like I can have my own Amazon Prime TV series because I'm always wearing a tight t-shirt and I have muscles popping out and I have my, you know, under armor cap. Um, that, that's a narrative that, that draws a lot of sympathy. Um, and one of the things that makes Operation Underground Railroad something that is so difficult or troublesome is because it draws on sincere sympathies for people, people who want to empathize and solve problems, totally. and see the dangers in the world. And the Tim Ballards of the world are taking advantage of that for very dangerous uh, causes. Exactly. Wow, you're articulate. Holy smokes, man, exactly on all of those. Taking advantage of very sincere, like, objects of our entire human existence and desire to end something that is as horrific as child sex trafficking. And the post I just put out today, I'm going to put it in my new video, not today, but I basically ask, you know, a bunch of questions to Tim Ballard, because if this is as bad as you say it is, it is there. Sex trafficking exists of children. This is true. But the inflated numbers and the exaggerated stories and the merchandise that is sold from it and Tim spending a lot of different time with a lot of different for-profit, non-profit production entities to film and monetize this all in the means of the end to promoting himself and promoting this idea all with what he kind of says is to bring people into the covenant. So if it, if it is as serious as you, you say it is, and this is something we really want to combat. And Tim Ballard says that the way to heal from it is, is through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And then, uh, invoking the covenant in one of the long, uh, videos that I did, um, our videos that I watched on the Book of Mormon Evidence Conference that I'll be going over in detail. He talks about how, how do we solve this problem? He tells a bunch of horrific stories. He's like, how do we solve this problem? He's like, it's how it always is. Got to invoke the covenant. 
What does that mean? That means the Mormon covenant, more people need to convert to the church, more people need to rise up and uh, make a covenant with God and forsake their sins that are not allowed within Mormonism. And the more that we move in a progression towards the, the Jesus Christ of Mormonism, the, the more that children will sporadically um, jump out of sex trafficking. And again, if we're going to give somebody a, a mantle to be this type of, of leader in such a, what, a movement where you're going to go in with armed guns into brothels all around the world to save what he says are 2 million, he says 2 million children are in sex trafficking. If that is true, what are the, what are the solutions? What are the answers? And who is the person we're putting in charge of that? And again, like you said, it's, it's, it's hitting at people's most sincere beliefs and if you believe the same things I believe, you're on the good side, and then everyone can kind of be cast on the other side, as he calls it, uh, setting the pedophile trap. So, well, I think one one interesting thing to add there is that there's a lot of terminology overlap here that's allowing Tim Ballard to run in different spaces, because when he's speaking of a covenant and a covenant people, of course, this is drawing from a long Mormon tradition of what a covenant people actually means. And I'm sure when he gets in these private fireside types of settings, he will explicitly draw from Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, LDS Apostles. But when he's in these general settings, he, he's able to talk about a covenant people in ways that make sense to evangelicals, that make sense to Catholics, that make sense to people outside the Mormon tradition. Because Mormonism, I know I, this is going to be shocking to a lot of people, but Mormonism drew from a lot of cultural currents when it was born. So a lot of these phrases and a lot of these terms and practices um, have broader cultural resonance. I mean, it was the Puritans who can't, who were the first people on white Anglo-Americans on American soil who argued that this is a covenant nation, right? We are a city on a hill. And then that language is appropriated over the next 400 years to the point to where now um, you can have an evangelical far-right figure writing a book on the covenant people of America. And it would appear that he's saying the same thing as Tim Ballard, when at, whereas the theological underpinnings might be a lot, uh, might be quite different. And so there's this ecumenical overlap that's allowing someone like Tim Ballard that they're taking advantage of these cultural connections between Mormonism and America's far right. That one of the great ironies here is while these people are denouncing the LDS Church for becoming too cultural assimilated, their very arguments are founded on that cultural assimilation. They are able to become rock stars in the American media because of this overlap that has happened in the last 50 years of Mormonism, where they have aligned with the religious right. So that Tim Ballard, when he writes one of his books on where he's comparing himself to a modern day abolitionist, the forward is written by uh, Tom, Tom uh, by, uh, uh, I, I forget, the, the, the coach of the um, Pittsburgh Steelers, Mike Tomlin, that, that's his name, um, who is not Mormon, very much not a Mormon, but it's because they are using the shared language that has cultural capital and can make these Mormons fit into these evangelical uh, world. One of the things that I've been uh, surprised by and delighted by after my Slate article came out is that a lot of people were ex had like 
were somewhat familiar with Tim Ballard and Operation Underground Railroad and the movie Sound of Freedom, but then they became aware of Tim Ballard's historical writings. And I use historical in the broadest way possible with lots right. of square quotes going on, um, because that historical writing appears diluted outside of a certain, not, not even just outside of Mormonism, but a certain sphere within Mormonism. But it's a core part of Tim Ballard's mission and identity. Exactly. As a matter of fact, I have a, I have a slide about that from my Instagram as well. So pin in that. So I also just wanted to add, you mentioned that he is the one who is broadening his Mormonism to fit an evangelical audience. Right. And did you know that his book, the American covenant? So I will get into what that is in just a second, but as, as me and Ben are discussing this American covenant idea, uh, preceded all of his work at operation underground railroad before he founded that. And he was good friends with very, um, famous Mormon, unfortunately, um, Glenn Beck and, Glenn Beck loved it, his American Covenant book, and shared it with M. Russell Ballard. And did you know that M. Russell Ballard loved it, but he said, you need to rewrite this a second time, keep this one for Mormons and write it again, take out all of the Mormon parts and just uh, do it as a general Christian one about America being the covenant nation. Did you know that? I, yeah. I did not know that, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, so he has two versions of the American Covenant of his book, which is ironic because... The entire, the entire thesis has to do with Joseph Smith. So let me, and if you don't believe in Joseph Smith, uh, then you, you can't be really in the American covenant. I'm sorry to tell you. Um, so let me not do that slide. So, uh, I just wanted to share a couple more of these. So Tim believes in the American covenant. Tim Ballard believes the book of Mormon people are literal ancient Jews who fled Jerusalem and sailed to America, the promised land in 600 BC, where they landed in present day Florida, AKA the land of inheritance. The native Americans we know today who were genocided by settlers and displaced by the trail of tears are the literal descendants of the book of Mormon prophet Lehi called Lamanites. Tim believes if Americans don't respect the covenant land God has set aside for us and don't wake up and strive more diligently to obey the Mormon God, we will have the same horrible fate as the Lamanites, a.k.a. Native Americans. Any comments on that one? Yeah, so a couple things. Um, one is that Tim Ballard is, of course, already appropriating a narrative that's already been in place and now using it for these new purposes. Um, but that this type of language was not just inherent in Mormonism's message for the last 200 years, but has also been a growing, but was also a prominent part of early American discourse uh, before Mormonism. These people assuming that these Native Americans had a sacred past and a sacred destiny, maybe they're part of the Lost Tribes of Israel. Um, there's been a number of really important scholarly works that have come out in the last few years. And what's fascinating is that like there was this robust discourse that were saying very similar things to this about the Native Americans in America until Mormonism's caught onto it and started taking it to the next degree. And then suddenly, coincidence or not, it became taboo. It, it kind of the discourse disappears in American political language and and not as many people probably be, are, are saying it probably because it associates them with the Mormons who by that time are deemed social pariahs. It's like, you know, the girls at school where 
like the fashion forward ones who are the trendsetters, then Mormonism took it. And it's like, fine, you can have the bell bottom jeans. We don't want them anymore. That's the Mormons thing. Yes, indeed. Well said. Um, And just to reiterate that I know that um, when I put this on my Instagram, a lot of people are like, this is just standard TBM beliefs. I wanted to, to boil it down and get it progressively more detailed as I go on about specific things that are in this, this faction that I don't know, Ben, what would you say if, if I took, if I went to my home ward in Provo and I asked each one of them, the following things I'm going to have on this slide, could they finish my sentences? Could they, could they actually know what they believe? Could they actually say, yeah, I know this, 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 and this, and this, or is that like, yeah, we, I guess we kind of generally believe it, but with what, yeah. with what fervor and passion that the people like Tim Ballard believe this and preach this at every single one of their Mormon speeches. So it's one of those things to where it probably varies by congregations and even within the congregation, right? Right. So we it's not every know, TBM, right? We all know those scriptorian couples for who are the Relief Society president and the high priest group leader back when they had high priest group leaders who like prided themselves on knowing the history and knowing the stuff. And they're always yeah. willing to talk about this. And others who are like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Um, Mm -hmm. And and they're not really sure. I mean, I I remember Matt Bowman, the wonderful historian of Mormonism, once when talking about the doctrine of Kolob, right? One of these things that are the most exotic parts of Mormon doctrine. But when it comes to... Yeah, yeah. But where it comes down to like how prominent of role does that play in an everyday Latter-day Saints life? He likened it to um, the murder theme in one of the seasons of of uh, Friday Night Lights, to where it's like there, but like you don't really know what to do with it, and it does. Uh-huh. And like eventually, you're like, you know, we're all just going to collectively forget that. Um, and so I think for a lot of saints, there's a lot of these doctrines that are. The, the term I like to use, it's a live option. It's there to be picked up by those who want to. And so you have these self-selecting groups like those who attach themselves to the Tim Ballard world who really make that the core of their Mormonism. I mean, as is so frequently said, every Mormon is a cafeteria Mormon right? Mm -hmm. Every Mormon is going to be deciding what parts of the buffet they're going to be emphasizing. And choosing these particular, I'm going to take A, C, F, G, and L on my alphabet of Mormonism. Those combinations typically have cultural signifiers, meaning that they typically mean that you are attached to a specific uh, cultural body. And so that's what Tim Ballard represents. Oh, that is so well said, especially because these conferences, yes, where they, they do this, they pick these different cherry picked versions of, of, of Mormonism, uh, because Mormonism itself has had to adapt to what it looks like to be a Mormon, obviously. And, uh, a lot of people don't realize that the church that Joseph Smith set up in the first place and each different prophet and how they lived it, they would have gotten into heaven under very different circumstances, all knowing kind of different theology, all having different ideas of what they were even participating in. And so now in 2023, what this faction is called, they call themselves the traditionalist faction um, in Hannah Stoddard's book about like, there was no faith crisis. I talked about this on my last podcast, that there was a diversion after Leonard Arrington and he voted for FDR. And then they started lying for, cause they're core whores. And we are living the most strict to what Joseph Smith 
lived and taught and all of those things. With that being said, though, um, they they're they're trying. I don't know. They might go off the deep end and, and join polygamy. I don't know. They do cheat on their spouses sometimes, but yeah. So there's a whole different other faction. Only, of- only when Nephi commands it. Come on, you got only when be, the psychic be there. When Nephi commands it, exactly. Um, because I think it's important to use the Hannah Stoddard and like the Joseph Foundation people as an example. Please, there's nothing theologically heretical associated with believing Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon with the seer stone, right? There, that, that, that single historical factor or idea does not have broader theological significance, but placed within this cultural context, it becomes a shibboleth, right? It becomes mm-hmm. an, an idea that is suddenly, if you are accepting that Joseph Smith used a seer stone, you are accepting this whole broader range of, of ideas and traditions that have their own signifiers and meaning. Um, and so there's no coherent reason why all these specific ideas are grouped together. The heartland model, um, continuing revelation, uh, patriarchal authority, uh, Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon by, you know, the Urim and Thummim rather than a seer stone. There's no coherent reason why those specific ideas have to be grouped together. And if you reject one, it means you reject all of them. But that's how ideas are constructed in society, right? These concepts have no meaning outside of these ideological hierarchies that we create. And so what Tim Ballard, uh, I would even argue that Tim Ballard's not doing this. He's already inheriting a model and he's popularizing. I mean, he wasn't the first person to write a book that basically was on this American covenant. Cleon Skousen wrote both basically the same book with his 6,000 year league um, that was also trumpeted by Glenn Beck and also had a lot of cachet outside of Mormonism. And so Tim Ballard's is the latest iteration of, of a longer tradition. Yeah. And especially as I think we'll get into the, the fear of, I don't know what we call it, like belonging and like identifiers that if we're all afraid of the same types of things and we all have the same types of um, conspiracies, what does that say about the people that you belong to? Because when I was still in the church and my mom was, and I was like, eh, iffy, my mom, she sent me to the Book of Mormon Evidence website and she's like, she gave me Rod Meldrum's annotated uh, Book of Mormon. And I was like, okay, let's see what they have to say. And just by how outrageous their ideas were, I, one after the other, after there. And at the time I was like, I'm a conservative and stuff, but there becomes a certain threshold where you are only attracting people with really low critical thinking skills who are really highly susceptible to like delusions and paranoias. And that is why this, this nexus of all of this is so frightening because it is the people who have like the most to lose it, like Tim Ballard's anger of like, you know, how dare you say this about my church, people who are so committed, but also so much on the fringes when they engage in different conspiratorial things, one foot after the other. And I'm sure you can tell me as a historian, how that works for right. typical and, factions and of Mormonism also- that break off. And, and while I'm hesitant to say that they're doing this because they have a lower IQ or they're just not able to intellectually reason, I think they recognize that there's cultural belonging or meaning that comes with these ideas, right? It's not so much that they're so committed to believing yeah. that Zelf lived in what is now Missouri and that was his literal bones that Wilfred Woodruff and others encountered, but that Rod Meldrum says that that's true mm-hmm. and they want to be associated with Rod Meldrum. 
or that you have lots of people who like, if, if in any other context would be told, hey, do you think the angel Moroni visited George Washington at Valley Forge? And they're like, that sounds a bit out there. But what if I told you that Tim Ballard made that argument? They're like, okay, never mind. I'm 100% bought in, mm-hmm. right? There, there, there's a sense of community that comes with these sense of ideas, which is why like, we want people to be rational actors. We're not. None of us are completely rational actors. We all make decisions based on what, you know, society has taught us and what we think brings value. Totally. There's no reason why I eat a certain like cereal for breakfast as, as opposed to like Dwayne The Rock Johnson ate it and it looked cool. So I'm going to eat it every day of my life, right? We all make these decisions based on the communities in which we live. And that's an important factor to understand the the permeance of of these ideas that seem quite strange and radical, but make sense within this particular ecosystem. Excellent. Well said. Uh, Let me keep reading a couple of these. How's everyone doing in the chat? Yeah. Likes and thumbs up are so appreciated. Uh, Next one I wrote was Tim Ballard believes Mormon church founder and prophet Joseph Smith was chosen to usher in the restoration of God's one true church on the covenant land of the U.S. Joseph Smith's literal bloodline is from Joseph of the 12 tribes of Israel who settled in present day Britain. Let me explain. Tim Ballard believes uh, the other chosen land, Israel, like the United States, is a covenant land with Elohim, Mormon God. Just wanted to make it digestible for anyone who doesn't know which God we're talking about. In the Bible, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, was one of the patriarchs of the Israelite people. Jacob had 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Over time, the tribes scattered to fill the entire globe. The tribe of Joseph has a birthright. That birthright is the land of Britain and the United States. The Lamanites failed to live up to their covenant with Elohim, so the land and their white skin were taken from them. Joseph Smith, whose family immigrated from Britain, was chosen by God so that the United States and all nations of the earth will be blessed because of Joseph Smith's restoration of this American covenant. So just to recap, covenant land, Israel. Covenant land, also the soil of the United States of America. 12 tribes, they all figure stuff out. They get scattered. Mormon God, special plan for Lehi, get out of Jerusalem, Take your family, build a boat, sail around, and then deposit yourself where? Because they say they know very specifically. Rod Meldrum has the answers. When he's not working on his mink farm, he can tell us this. So the Mormon church, Mormon church's leadership refuses to answer, where did the Book of Mormon take place? So a lot of people have this Mesoamerican model within the LDS church, which is really convenient because it's like the jungles of Central America. We'll never find it. However, the Heartlanders believe that the land of inheritance, Tallahassee, Florida, Lehigh, Nephi land, Lamanites, Nashville, Tennessee, Nauvoo, Illinois, that's where Zarahemla was, North Country, that's Palmyra, all right, that's up by Kirtland. So Tim Ballard believes that the Book of Mormon took place there, stakes his life on it. So that is another main part of the American covenant, that you, if God has a, a covenant land, in Israel, and he has another covenant land in America. Lehi's descendants, Nephi's and Lamanites, they effed it up. They just plain effed it up by just getting genocided by the by by the settlers. So they they had a, they apparently couldn't cut it with Mormon God, 
They got what was coming to them. And it is very clear, explicit language all through scripture. If you do not fulfill your covenants with God, there's land covenants and other categories, but that your people will not be blessed. You do not get to keep your land, maybe not even your skin color. So the reasons, as me and Ben were talking about early on, that that there's such a fear about our nation, everything about this certain Mormon faction with conservatism is so fearful for our nation. I just watched a video of Glenn Beck from two years ago. And, you know, the way that Glenn Beck talks, we let a lot of right wingers talk when they start their show. They're like, civil war is here. This is the election that means everything. If you don't vote, your civil rights and human rights are all going to be taken away. They're going to jail anyone who has an opinion and wants to worship God tonight at 11. You know, like that kind of talk. So this idea that if we don't save our country, then then all of our all of the liberties that, that we died for in World War II, that the, the revolutions all, all paid the price for, that very patriotic version that of America that my dad has bankrupted our family twice from trying to sell American flags for like that kind of dude, <laughs> that kind, because, uh, the, the, the intertwined nature of, of why we need to save America and what is wrong with America has nothing to do with systemic reform has nothing to do with, you know, the reasons people are in poverty and, it, it really has everything to do with like your thing, like your special thing about your God and about your stories. But as Tim says in these, you know, eight hours of videos that I watched, he's like, we, we are in the American covenant. Like, like that. I don't make the rules. God makes the rules. This is what it says in scripture. We have to keep living in this American covenant. And if you wonder why America is not blessed, if you wonder why there's so much slavery around the world. It started in heaven. It started with the war in heaven with Lucifer. I'm, I'm literally quoting Tim Ballard right now. It started with the war in heaven with Lucifer, where he didn't want us to be, to be free, to have the liberty. So it's always this ongoing fight, slavery and liberty, all the same things that you could hear on any, you know, regular Joe Schmo kind of like right-wing talk show. Those are all interchangeable when they talk about their Mormon faith as well. So three points. One, when you're talking uh, about this this rhetoric of like something anxious has to happen. I mean, that's what religious leaders, political leaders, institutional organization leaders, the first thing you're supposed to do is cause a sense of urgency, right? You have to set a deadline. You have to set a coming apocalypse, a coming that you, that that's how you're going to rally. That's how you raise $150 million like Tim Ballard. Right? You, you have to get a sense of urgency going on. And so that's why they have, that's why apocalypticism has always been an entrenched uh, aspect of Christianity ever since, you know, 2000 years ago. Um, second, when you talk about the bloodlines and the covenant, um, this is, I think, a great example of what I was discussing further about what I was discussing earlier about these live options of Mormonism that just hang around. Um, Mormons often pride themselves on the beauty of a uh, ongoing restoration, right? An open canon of truth that prophets are able to speak as authoritatively as prophets of old. But the downside of that, right? The, the danger of that is what do you do with those prophetic teachings that no longer have a place in modern society? And the bloodlines doctrine is an example of that. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, a lot of 19th century leaders were really focused on the purity of bloodlines. And they talked about things. Joseph Smith would talk about that even if if you weren't of a certain bloodline, your conversion would 
physically, literally transform your blood to be of these different bloodlines. And that made sense because they were coming from an Anglo-American tradition that also believed this and that they believed that they were a chosen race. This was based on this quasi-biblical, quasi-scientific theory of the races. I'm I'm working on a, a Boston abolition of the abolitionists in the 1840s and 1850s who believed the same exact thing. So that was baked into Mormonism. But in the 20th century, an evolution happens. As Mormonism becomes much more global, as it eventually becomes much more racial, racially universalist, you know, culminating, of course, in the 1978 uh, proclamation that granted temple and priesthood rights to those of African descent. Um, what do you do with those previous teachings? Well, Mormon leaders don't want to denounce those because that's going to undercut prophetic infallibility, right? That if, if they if we admit that prophets in the past are wrong, that's going to raise questions of well, what are prophets and apostles wrong about now? The Pope right? does it. Why can't they? Right, right. Well, I mean, it's one of the, that classic saying that Catholics uh, believe that the or Catholics uh, are supposed to believe that the Pope is infallible, but they don't, and Mormons aren't supposed to believe their prophets are infallible, but but they do. Um, and so this bloodline idea never gets fully denounced, but it just kind of it it hangs there. It dangles there for for anyone who wants to pluck it out. So when Tim Ballard, and now I finally got to my point number three, when Tim Ballard writes his book about this bloodline covenant, he's able to tie it both within this long entrenched Mormon tradition of bloodlines, as well as connected to this much larger Anglo-American tradition. Many of you know that Tim Ballard wrote the, the the great trilogy of the hypothesis series, right? The the George Washington, the Washington hypothesis, the Lincoln hypothesis. Um, we can get into those if you want. But like his other one Have is- Have you read those? I, 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 I've skimmed through them. Um, I, I would read a chapter here and there. But the third one that I thought was an odd fit, and I'm like, well, that's kind of weird, was the Pilgrim hypothesis. Right, where he actually talks about the New England pilgrims. And I'm like, what the hell is he going to cook up there? It doesn't really fit the others. But you read through it, and it's all about bloodlines. It's all about the pilgrims being part of this chosen seed, coming over from this new Israel who had settled Britain, coming over and bringing that chosen seed to this new world. It's all about race and ethnicity without saying so. And so it fits within this broader covenant that... um, might appear not that, you know, scandalous because who doesn't like the pilgrims, right? They were very religious. They were fleeing religious persecution. And for some reason, we don't know, they wore buckles on their hats. But in reality, they represent this myth of this this socially, ethnically pure body of God-fearing people who in reality were trying to set up a theocratic society that are to serve as a model for those who want to return society back to those pure origins. Yeah. And you're a genius. Thank you for uh, explaining that. That's a really important point because um, I didn't realize that it, that he, he even thought that the pilgrims had that bloodline because again, like I said, uh, this faction talks a lot about the importance of the covenant can really only be invoked by the son of the son of Joseph, that Judah, he got his fill with the messianic covenant. The other tribes, they had their fun, but the the birthright of land with Joseph needed to come from after the after the twelve tribes 
scattered, it is their belief that they ended up in Britain. And they have, I would love a linguist. If you're a linguist, please reach out to me. <laughs> I have some things I want you to go over. They have a portion of their website that says that like the Saxon word for like covenant is like Brit and then Brit and then man. And then man means like people and like Britain means covenant people. Whoa. Checks out to me. Yeah. So again, Hannah Stoddard at these conferences, I'm not making fun, but they have these t-shirts that say I'm a Latter-day Nephite because they truly believe that, that you most likely have Nephite blood in you because you have 12 tribes blood in you. And so getting back to your point about the pilgrims, I, when I was, when I was reading all this stuff, usually everything comes back to, you know, that you're in the covenant land and you will see it by the miracles that are experienced and the pilgrims, again, his entire pilgrim hypothesis and all of this has a lot about the, the miracles, the against the odds that shouldn't have worked. They found, you know, Squanto, he spoke English and it was a miracle, even though most people died and looking at this very American centric version of just because, you know, the American history and you can infer miracles out of it doesn't mean that that is therefore the covenant. But if you're looking to confirm your biases, you will look for the, the miracles within American history. But let me get to um, my next slide because it goes along with what I'm saying right now. Um, that Tim Ballard believes you cannot understand U.S. history if you don't learn it with Mormon scripture. He said, don't even attempt to read, to, to read about, more, about U.S. history if you don't read it in conjunction with Mormon scripture. So Tim Ballard believes that the geography of the Book of Mormon matters a great deal because the U.S. is and always has been a covenant land with God. He believes that the prophet Nephi from the Book of Mormon saw and prophesied all the foundational events in U.S. history, like the pilgrims, and that the miracles of the nation's founding are evidence of the American covenant. Such miracles are not evident in Guatemala and Mexico, so the covenant land is there. And uh, you know what? I would say a good portion of the church who believe in the Mesoamerican model of the Book of Mormon, that it took place south of the border. Um, I bet there's a lot of like LDS, uh, there's a lot of LDS people from Central Latin America who could probably have their own histories about their own heroic warriors who got independence from the nations that were colonizing them. But just because you, Tim Ballard, you don't know those stories. <laughs> um, doesn't uniquely mean that uh, this American land, this is the covenant land that you have to protect. But, but he did say, yeah, Guatemala and Mexico can suck it to, to Tim Ballard, I guess. Well, and to tie into this, this broader theme of, and I, I saw a few comments of people that brought this up. It's not a coincidence that Tim Ballard and Rod Meldrum and others are white and making this argument, right? I'd made this point earlier about how it's not a coincidence that the heartland model is coming up to re-sacralize America at a time that America seems to be displaced as a center of a global Mormonism. The same thing can be true that you see this resurgence in highlighting these Anglo-American white bloodlines at a time of Black Lives Matter, right? It's the mm -hmm. theological equivalent of All Lives Matter. And it's trying to make this argument that no, we are re-centering a certain demographic the, the white patriarchal male. 
at the heart of the gospel covenant. And that covenant has to mean something. And so that's why you see this, this, this response to uh, the same people who are pushing for the Tim Ballard stuff are also opposing diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're opposing pushes for social justice. It's also why, by the way, the images of the Operation Underground Railroad are always the white savior saving the black children. Right? Because as soon as you start dealing with systematic problems of sex mm -hmm. trafficking, systematic problems of poverty and abuse, it doesn't fall down a racial divide. It's so much easier to envision a white heroic savior race going off to some third world quote unquote shithole country, right? To use a certain cultural hero of that segment of the population to go save people as opposed to actually dealing with the, the, the complicated social issues of modernity. Yeah, the complicated issues. And again, I used to be very conservative and I lost my faith in Mormonism first. And I told my parents, I was like, don't worry, it's fine. I still listen to Ben Shapiro every day. You're good. And just as I had to kind of break up this fairy tale narrative that I had about Joseph Smith and my, my leaders would never lie to me. And, uh, you, you kind of had to break up with part of your identity. I also had to kind of break up with part of my identity of, you know, I had a, I had a one piece bathing suit of an American flag. I actually had three of them. That's how conservative Kara was. Okay. <laughs> so I'm saying like the, the type of, of, of patriotism that was just baked in to who I was and my upbringing and all of my identity that that's not actually a fearful, scary thing. Like I think that a lot of people think that it is that it's like, oh, you're trying to tell me like if I were to have that conversation with my dad, you know, he wears a Trump hat every single day of his life till this day. You know, the the idea that like there's there's actual people in this world that are negatively influenced by certain policies that are within our our control, certain systemic things that just need money that and 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 there's a type of of distribution for, for corporations that are just kind of going under your nose, but you're really angry at the, uh, you know, the single mom on welfare who's taken the check from the government, but not the, the corporation. And so there's this, this, this divide where once you kind of recognize that you can, you can be so wholesale into, and this is like, not to get political, I'm not trying to turn off conservatives here or anything. I'm just saying that as I, uh, left Mormonism, I had to recognize that the America is not the center of the universe, <laughs> that, that my experience is not the center of the universe as a Mormon. And it's definitely not the center of the universe as an American. And there's good things that we've done. And there's also horrible things that we've done. And I'm just a member of the human race. Now I'm not, I'm not the specific child of God that's plucked out. And I was, I was, you know, one of the leaders that were foreseen in heaven or something. I'm a member of the human race. And so as a member of the human race, and I want the best for everybody, it comes with a certain detachment from, from, I don't care how it makes me feel. I just want to know what is, what is the best practices and what is the best evidence show? And that can be a whole swath of things that can be conservative, liberal, that can be a lot of different policies. So I hope that made sense. Anything else you want to say on that? Uh, no, just to tie that together, uh, the Desert News actually had an op-ed recently where it talked about how nationalism is a bad thing, right? Patriotism is a good thing. Nationalism or believing that your nation is the center of the universe at the expense of everything else is a bad thing and Mormons should not be doing it anymore. And as you might expect, the comment section on that 
that uh, article was flooded with Mormons who are saying, you Latter-day Saints of all people should know that nationalism is the crux of the gospel because they've interwoven uh, the, these narratives of both uh, religious supremacy and political supremacy. And that's why you get same white Christian nationalism outside the Mormon sphere and the Mormon Deseret nationalism, which is the Mormon version of that, growing together. It's it's a broader cultural current going on today. Uh, exactly. A lot of people are saying as well that they didn't realize how political Mormonism was until I left. Same. I didn't realize how overly drowned in American exceptionalism and nationalism it was. The church. Right on, right on. Do, um, do I have a book for you? <laughs> What's it called? And when's it coming out? American Zion, January 2024. Yay. Everyone pick up a copy. Okay. A um, couple more. Um, I already went on that one. And then lastly, Tim Ballard believes in the American covenant to such a degree that he takes Mormons on tours of historical sites tied to the founding of the U.S. All these bus stops from Boston to Washington, D.C. are interwoven with Book of Mormon history. During Tim's impromptu press conference following his church's statement that the friendship with Elder Ballard is in the past, Tim was on one of these tours and said, Elder Ballard asked me to take him on this tour. One friend says he loved the concept of the American covenant. He loved this tour. He encouraged you to do it. Does this tell us that the Mormon apostle appointed prophet, seer, and revelator believes in the American covenant and U.S. Book of Mormon geography too? Because if you're going to go on a tour with Tim Ballard and a bunch of Heartlanders as an apostle, and he's going to go around and he's going to say, this happened in Boston. We're really grateful for this miracle. That proves the American covenant. We're on the American covenant land. And Tim Ballard talked about in one of his speeches how he said, that he does like the American covenant tour where they go to the, the more mainstream, you know, you could go on a high school tour of all these things from Philadelphia to DC. Uh, but he's like, Rod, we should do one where you do the, the, the book of Mormon sites back East and I'll do the, the patriotic American ones. We'll bring our guns and we'll have a, a rock and American Mormon good time. So that's what I mean by all of this is very interwoven and it just leads my, my wandering mind to think about if the Mormon uh, leaders, like Ben was saying, they don't want to come out and show how fallible they are. They can't say where the Book of Mormon was, even though, you know, Joseph Smith directly said, Hill Camorra right back there, deposited the plates. I went and picked him up. Oops, it's a clean hill. It's got to be somewhere else. So the Mormon church has also had kind of an identity crisis. I don't know if you'd agree with that of like, they don't really know where the book of Mormon land is. And that is just, that kind of keeps, that's like a, the busy work of, of all Latter-day Saints is to figure out where the book of Mormon took place and fight over their ed evidence, the Mesoamerican and the Heartlander model. But if we have an apostle who believes in the American covenant, he's spoken on it. Um, I think at BYU before and has been in the, the lane of not just Tim Ballard's friendship, but also, if you know the history of M. Russell Ballard, a long history of being defrauded and defrauding others is also the history of uh, the Mormon apostle M. Russell Ballard. <laughs> I would love to do an entire episode about just Mormon fraud and specifically his uh, sus uh, susceptibility to it. But it it makes me wonder, does that if an apostle says it, isn't that kind of what Mormons should kind of go with, that that's the Book of Mormon model? Rod Meldrum, the mink farmer, got it right. So what's fascinating is that Mormon apostles 
at least for the last 50 years, have taken pains not to appear divided on concepts. They want they don't want to speak on things unless they feel that they can appear united. And one reason why they haven't spoken out on Book of Mormon lands is because there's not a consensus among them of what it is. There are some who probably fully 100% buy into the Heartland model. And there are others who fully 100% bought into the Mesoamerican model. And then there are others who probably think that whole argument is a diversion from the pure sacred truths of the Book of Mormon, right? There, there are a variety of different Mormon conservative approaches to this type of topic. I mean, starting from the Nauvoo period up until the 1970s, 1980s, it was a pretty broad consensus among believing Mormon leaders that it was a Mesoamerican model. From what years um, to what years? From the Nauvoo years, so in Nauvoo, Joe Smith and others start publishing reports about Mesoamerican ruins and things like that. And that's when Joe Smith goes, oh, no, but that's where Zion was. Um, and then, like, to the point of where in the, in the 1920s, the church starts publishing Book of Mormon copies to where the first few pages are photographs of archaeological evidence of the Book yeah. of Mormon people in Central America. Um, and then that gets taken out. <laughs> in uh, uh, later on when the debates over these historicity questions uh, come out. And so now there have been some wonderful scholars who have tried to piece together, you know, offhanded sayings by apostles or, or like covert, not covert, but like just not indirect references in general conference talks to try to piece out this broader map of where church leaders like M. Russell Ballard might come down on this issue. But the core truth is that like they're divided on this. They don't, they don't know where it is. And, and to be able to maintain this image of United Front, they've mostly tried to avoid, which is why you get... Um, stories of M. Russell Ballard going on the American Covenant tour and saying, this is correct. Um, while at the same time, getting stories of other apostles going on the Mesoamerican tours with like the Dan Petersons of the world and saying, no, this is correct. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like this folk uh, stories that come out of who can get up close and have a personal bus ride with an apostle. And that's where you get this dispensation of which of these models is correct. That is some good intel. I like that info. Thank you, man. Uh, all right. That was the end of my slides. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning into this live stream. We have uh, close to 300 people in it. I'm exaggerating, but uh, please uh, add any super chats if you want to get anything read on screen. So you can tell Ben is a wealth of knowledge. So um, why don't I go ahead and read it and you stop me. Um, is there any other intros that you wanted to add before we read your slate article? Nope. Let's do it. Sound of freedom. Tim Ballard is a star on the right. Why would his church denounce him? The church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is conservative, but maybe not like this. Late last week, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints shocked people who follow American conservatism after a spokesperson issued a statement distancing the institution from Tim Ballard, the founder of Operation Underground Railroad and subject of the breakout summer hit film Sound of Freedom. Ballard had betrayed his friendship, quote unquote, with a prominent LDS leader, the statement to Vice declared, but his fundraising activities were deemed morally unacceptable. So I noticed you put fundraising activities were deemed morally excessive. Yeah, so that was that was a, was a little license. 
that that was a remnant of writing this before the the the, the vice uh, thing came out about the um, the affair or sexual misconduct stuff, and oh. so that, you can see that tacked on later on okay. in the essay. But that was a remnant of of a, of writing the draft before we knew the fuller extent of the morally unacceptable behavior. Well, while we're on it, what is your what is your guess if we're can we out conspiracy, the conspiracy theorists? What is your guess on what the morally unacceptable alluded to more than anything? As as a historian who likes to work from facts, I have a hard time speculating. Uh, but I will say that I think it would take something pretty drastic uh, being done in the name of a Mormon apostle to justify such an explicit uh, denunciation from church leaders. Because I mean, as a historian of Mormonism, statements this explicit about individual members um, are very, very rare and would require some, some extreme action, uh, which uh, like, so yeah, I would just, yeah, I would frame it as I would think it would be, it's something that's very serious to, in order to justify that. Because remember, this would have to convince, I, I bet that statement from the church was dissected by several dozen people, including totally. lots of lawyers and including lots of the top brass of the LDS authority. Many of that large group of people were probably devoted Operation Underground Railroad fans. Yes. Um, and so to be able to get that group of people on board um, likely included some pretty clear evidence. My, my guess, because uh, it, the reporters came out and said that they waited three, it was three weeks from the time that they asked the church um, to the time that they got that statement. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if the church did filed their own Freedom of Information Act and got the same types of documents that the vice reporters had access to, or they did their own investigation. Um, because that three-week break and that uh, explicit denunciation tells me that they must have seen something pretty extreme. Maybe he was a porn addict, meaning he looked at porn one time. So I think in one of his speeches, he says, he goes on this long rampage about just how, oh, man, it is conspiratorial. I can't wait to talk about this later. A little bit of it is on my Instagram right now, but man, he goes on this long rant about what he calls the pedophile network doctrines. And they're like, all, most of them are horrible things, just horrible things you'd never want. You know, I, I don't want to normalize anything to do with pedophilia, but he says, these are the things that are being normalized. And then, you know, at the end, it's like in taking God out of schools. And what are they replacing it with? And he has conspiracy after conspiracy. He says, what they're doing right now, furries, there's, there's, there's kitty litter in Utah schools right now. And poor janitors have to clean up the poop from kids who identify as cats. What's stopping somebody from saying that they are 50, but they identify as a 10 year old? Like this is, this is, it's not even on the way it's here people. And he says stuff like, uh, Anyway, he goes into this long rampage about just how sexual our culture is right now. And it's just so devious and we need the gospel and to invoke the covenant. But then at one point he did say that he's like, kids having access to smartphones right now, man, if I, if I was a 13 year old boy and I had access to a phone, I wouldn't be able to resist looking at pornography every day, but we just give our kids and pull the audience. I have never heard anyone who has a relation, healthy relationship with 
sexual materials or just sex in general <laughs> say like anything like that it's usually like yeah 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 of course you know i would have looked at that stuff it, instead i looked at something else and i uh, grew up in a different way but he just seemed like really really in this panic that there's just sex is just pressing in on his mind at all times. And that type of like Mormon guy who has to have the temple on his background of his computer. And when you're dating him, you're like, that's your Bishop told you to put that on there. Cause you're addicted to porn. It's kind of like this psychological thing. People told me to speculate. That's what I'm talking about. I was like, I think he's got a lot of Mormon demons and he's in a lot of places around the world where he has a lot of sway and power and he is able to manipulate situations like it's been talked about with these uh, sexual misdeeds where seven women have come, uh, uh, what's the right wording? Seven women have accused him inside the, the Davis County federal and federal investigation as well. I think seven women of grooming behavior saying that Tim told us that we had to shower together because the traffickers needed to believe in this couple's ruse or something. And I'm looking forward to Tim has an Instagram post he just put out last night where he's like, uh, a lot of people have been asking about the tactic that we use with our female operatives. And it's called the couple's ruse where sometimes we need to act and hold hands in public. And I'm going to have my female operatives come out and they're going to tell you about the kind of things that we do. Again, I'm really interested to see if he talks about the things that he's accused of, though, because reason you're no one's accusing you of holding hands with somebody. We're, they're being accused of 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 years long grooming and sleeping with other women and showering with them. Think that's what we want to know. Why the showering with them, especially because I have also done. Sorry, I'm going on a rant here. I have done a lot of research on Operation Underground Railroad. I haven't slept a lot in a week. Trust me, I have read a lot of things that Lynn Packer, please, for the love of all that's good and holy, go watch his YouTube channel, the investigative journalist who has information and access and who can tell you the timeline of all these things. But um, he, he goes into great detail about everything. And I have to say that Operation Underground Railroad, it's a really nice idea. Wish you guys could have, wish, wish, wish. I wish that the tens of millions of dollars were actually that somehow that these ex Navy people and also just like whatever rich billionaire friends you also wanted to include on your operations, like Paul Hutchinson and Glenn Beck and celebrities that you would come do these really dangerous things with. I wish that that was a, a framework that worked, but as Lynn Packer, this investigative journalist reveals that most countries do not let you just have this strike force team that comes in and starts hassling their, their people, even if you are trying to protect them. And so a lot of Operation Underground Railroads op, uh, stings would involve just like, like this kind of like a fine line between prostitution and, and sex work of like consenting adults with a lot of embellishments, a lot, lot, lot of embellishments. And so even with all that being said that like the places that, that Len Packer describes that he's going into, he's pretty much just like harassing pimps and prostitutes. And if it's, if the, the, again, the proposition is like child sex, child sex slavery, the most horrible thing in the world, front and center, but looks like 99% of the time you're kind of playing Rambo big shot and hassling like 
people who are who don't have uh, access to attorneys to be able to defend themselves, especially in these other countries. Like, you know that these countries are are really corrupt and they can be involved in these things. But then by the same token, um, you can also go into their houses with guns and they have no way to like actually uh, have an attorney present to have any kind of of the human rights that you would have in the United States. And that's that's all part of this this big, long ramble to basically say that what do we think was the morally unacceptable activities? I think that with what I just said, you're going to have to explain Tim Ballard how these sex traffickers, when it usually turned out that you're just you're, you're going into places where there are pimps and established prostitutes. I don't know why you need to go back to the place that you're staying at and shower with with the female operatives. I don't see how those are connected. Um, and it feels like everything that I've read has just been a gigantic marketing ploy. And within that, a lot of ego, uh, a lot of I'm chosen by God. I'm doing all these really important things. I'm on top of the world. Nothing can touch me. Anyone who says anything bad, those people work for Satan. Those people work for the sex trafficking. They want to encourage sex trafficking if they have anything bad to say about me. So he thinks he's kind of built this armor where he can he can do and say so many lies. The Instagram post I just put up, and I'll be going into this week. It's just everything is a lie. So lie, 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 lie. And so I don't know why with what the what the church said about using M. Russell Ballard's name for certain things. My biggest and bestest conspiracy theory is that uh, John DeLynn said they had like, you know, two people have told him this. This is like as gossipy as gossip gets, but I have to counterbalance your historical takes that Tim was saying when these women were like, is this kosher? Is this okay? That he said, yeah, M. Russell Ballard definitely wants me to soap up your butt or whatever. So using his name, the prophet's name saying he signed off on this. Uh, when I most definitely don't think that he did. That is my biggest conspiracy. Um, and I think we're going to be getting more details. Both the vice journalists and Lynn Packer both said that they have more forthcoming. So I I, I imagine we're going to have uh, uh, some important uh, filler into our uh, speculation vacuum soon. Yes. Let's just see me be proved right. Again, Lynn Packer, YouTube, the rabbit hole that, oh man, I've never had so much fun on YouTube in my 34 years of life. I have never enjoyed watching YouTube videos as much as I watch Lynn Packer's uh, dissection of all of Tim, ba Tim, pa uh, Tim Ballard's lies. So cannot recommend it enough. Um, and that is our, that is our uh, morally unacceptable rant. Um, old Ben, you go on to say, it was a rare and stunning rebuke for a church that rarely speaks out about individual members. It was also a blow to Ballard, a rising star rumored to be eyeing the Utah Senate seat that is opening up due to Mitt Romney's decision to retire. And I just wanted to add a quick thing. I don't know if you know much about this, but Lynn Packer uh, goes through the history of different political things and different things that Tim Ballard has said throughout the years. And he talked about running for Senate years ago as well. And this is this whole idea that's like, oh, all this came out just because you wanted to run for Senate, I think is one of the most obnoxious parts of, of the conspiracy that it, no, it's not just that somebody who did bad things and uh, thought that they had like this, this bulletproof 
persona that it's not, it's not a a calculated campaign against you. It's that you've told enough lies that it's, it's coming out over and over again to the point that your own church needs to, needs to say something. There's been a lot of speculation. Like I was watching word radio last week where they think that there's just people who are part of this democratic liberal agenda at the church PR offices. And they Cardin on word radio last week. He's like, I know lots of Utah politicians who When they told the LDS church that they were going to run for office, the church said, don't do it. So it's like, I think that's kind of funny. Don't you think that's funny that if the church PR knows that something is bad for church PR and it's like a very right-wing candidate and they say, don't run. (laughs) Right. I think, first of all, I mean, we can go on a whole tangent of the LDS church involvement in Utah politics. Uh, I I think what's fascinating here is it's important to remember, Vice has been working on this for three years. Totally. A lot um, of this stuff is not new. That is what's I mean, so obnoxious. I, Most of this I, stuff is not new. I, I did an interview with Tim Marchman, who's one of the two yeah. vice journalists. I did an interview with him in summer of 2001. Or sorry, 2021, not 2001. That would have been a long time ago. 2021. I talked about with him about Operation Underground Road, and they were already uncovering stuff. And then it was the the um, Utah prosecuting attorney that was looking into Operation Underground Railroad for the last few years. When they closed that investigation for reasons that still aren't clear, um, that meant that suddenly there was a paper trail, uh, a paper trail that journalists like the Vice reporters have been wanting for a long time. And so they put in a freedom of information request, didn't get that until earlier this year. They put in their request to the LDS church for comment. Um, Three weeks later, got the church's statement. The only place where the Senate uh, actually plays a role is because Mitt Romney retired and because it became clear that... um, there are enough signals that Ballard was probably going to throw in his hat into that campaign. That put the clock going for the church responding. The church was probably already going to put out a statement because they had been working on it for several weeks. But as soon as the Senate race came in, that, I mean, it's just smart PR. You don't want to do this after he announces his campaign for the presidency because that then the story becomes the church getting involved in political affairs and they do not want that press coverage. And so there's no grand conspiracy between any of that. That's all logical steps of how investigatory projects work. And that's how public relations work. Whether or not you agree with the church, whether or not you agree with their statement that they never sustained Operation Underground Railroad, yada, yada, yada. Whether or not you agree with any of that, it is good protocol for press relations to take the steps that they did over the the previous few weeks. And like any press relations group for any large institution, their primary concern is, is, is clearing up or maintaining the church's posture. And these are actions that because they they didn't want the they didn't want the vice story of the church distancing themselves from Tim Ballard. In a perfect world, they wouldn't want that at all. Mm-hmm. But that's a lot better than the church makes a statement after Tim Ballard announces his uh, Senate run. Do you think he'll run as a Republican or a Democrat? These are the jokes, folks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um all right. Mitt Romney, you old sweetie. Okay. Sorry to see you go, bud. The never Trumper, basically. Well, that's neither here nor there. 
Then on Monday, Vice revealed that Ballard's resignation from underground Operation Underground Railroad earlier this year came after an internal investigation into claims of sexual misconduct involving seven female employees. So there we have that part. But Tim Ballard is going to be on Instagram sometime this week telling us how it was just a couple's ruse. They I'm sure absolutely he'll, he'll clarify to... it up to our satisfaction, I'm sure. Yes. Um, I'm a little bit scared of uh, the the uh, Mormon continuing revelation on how to lie for your sexual deviancy. So we'll have to do it when we end, we'll have to do a little, um, rapid fire of all of the ways Tim Ballard is like Joseph Smith. That would be fun. Anyway. Um, even with this news, the dispute between Ballard and the church might appear odd to many observers. The LDS church is more commonly known for cracking down on progressive voices after all. We can rattle those off off the top of our head and let's go back and forth. I mean, the, the, the clapping the, game is, way, you gotta do the clapping game with me. You gotta go. Well, the, the irony of Don this Dillman. taking place in the 30th anniversary of the September 6th. Ooh, is it really? Yeah, I mean, September, yeah, this is the 30th anniversary of the September 6th uh, disciplinary hearings. Even when you say September 6th, thinking back to Sunstone, like I could start crying my ear, my ears, my eyes and ears and all sure. my senses. <laughs> No, um, I, I was at Sunstone, me and Ben attended the same session of the September 6th and this very famous case of all of these um, different influential from Mormon historians and feminists and uh, generally people that the church wanted to kick out, uh, kicking them out on a uh, this one, I guess it was over the course of, was it over the course of a month or was it in one single day? Right. So it was over a course of a month. It wasn't one day. And I, I will quickly add that as much as we want to contain it as six people and the much of September, this was a much broader purge yeah. that took place over several years and several dozen people. Yeah. And um, if you want to read more, Google Benjamin Park, September 6th. I have a column that came out last week on it. I'll add it to the show notes, Ben. Thank you. Um, yes. Cracking down in progressive voices after all. Yet there has been... I'm going to put it on screen. Don't worry. Uh, yet there has been a growing divide between the LDS church and far right wing members for over a decade. Now the radicalization of American conservatism with its denunciation of mainstream news sources, forfeiture of traditional norms and embrace of partisan based alternative facts had had severe consequences within Mormon culture. The erupting fight between Ballard, a growing hero on the far right, and Latter-day Saint leaders is just one point of public exposure for a much broader phenomenon. Great writing. Mm. Well, that's, I mean, that's my my calling card. I once asked um, ChatGPT to write an analysis of something on Mormonism in the style of Benjamin Park. And I think it used the actual phrase, this is part of a broader phenomenon of American religious history. So, I mean, yeah, if this is a drink moment, right? Drink, Ben said that this is part of understanding a, the larger issue of American religious history. It's part of your bingo card. Did that's he right. say phenomenon? That, that's right. Uh, for any church to thrive, leaders must always balance competing tensions. On the one hand, they are forced to adapt to changing circumstances. Conversely, they must also appeal to eternal truths that transcend evolving societies. So when institutions like the LDS church are believed to be tipping too far to the former impulse at the expense of the latter, there's often cause for discomfort, especially from conservative believers who denounce modern society as corrupt. 
Yes. Right. And that's a dynamic you find in every single religious institution. Yeah. Right? Appeals to transcendence while necessarily adapting. And whenever you have that, you're going to have people who feel like the church is adapting in the wrong ways. Um, and I mean, we've traced all these different denominations that claim to be the true inheritors of Joseph Smith. Most of those breakoff schisms are can be defined as conservative. Because what do liberals do when they get upset with church leaders? They just leave, right? I mean, they 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 had their their mental worldview means that all right, we're just not that this world this religious has crumbled. I'm just going to find my satisfaction in some other type of affiliation. Conservatives who believe in conserving core truth. Their response to a theological crisis is restoring that truth, which means often creating a new denomination. And is that where the schism part comes in? Possibly. I mean, we already see a, a lot. I mean, the, the Denver snuffer schism that, that, that took place. I mean, and that's just one of many who are uh, outright questioning um, mainstream authorities, teachings and doctrines and saying that we need to restore the remnant of Mormon truth. And so it's possible. I don't know if Tim Ballard will do that. I mean, one thing that's been clear with Mormon schism, there's not a lot of money in it. And so, I mean, it, it could be that this blows over and Tim Ballard finds himself back in good graces, maybe not with the church institution, church leaders, but at least he decides that his best course to fundraising and having yeah. a successful operation still means reaching out to faithful Mormons. That's going to be a calculation that he's going to make in the next, you know, foreseeable future. Yeah. And all of this, this talk and fighting can go on through text messages and, you know, in the Holy of Holies in the temple, it's not going to be out there for all the public to see, but I'm sure that there's a lot of discussion and uh, infighting and even among the, 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 the quorum of the 12, um, I, uh, went out to lunch with a older ex-Mormon gentleman last year who used to, um, be faithful, served every calling that there is in the church and, uh, has been best buds with the whole quorum of the 12. And, uh, if you have any other Intel or anything you want to add to this, Ben, he said that like, yeah, they're pretty split down the middle, like six here and you know, whatever, six plus three, nine. <laughs> I don't know, are on the other side. You have the first presidency of the three that are always pretty united. And then the quorum of the 12 apostles. And he described to me how like, yeah, there are some issues, like half of them are more progressive and the other half of them are like, you know, get off my lawn, angry old men who don't want the kids to be dancing in Footloose. So I, I, I once had a, a friend whose uh, father was uh, held a position to wear secretary or assistant to um, the Quorum of the Twelve. And he said that you could tell based on um, in the mornings he would deliver mail and included in the mail were the newspapers and magazines that the different apostles would subscribe to. And it was very telling, you know, which stack of magazines went to which apostles to determine where they stand on certain issues and some who are more open-minded than others and some who have no curiosity on that and don't have any newspapers delivered. And so, I mean, it was a conscious decision that church leaders made in the 1960s and 1970s that we need to have a united front of the Quorum of the Twelve, which meant not talking about our 
um, divergence of opinions. Now, there's a charitable reading of that, right? They want to say that we want to appear united and focus on the fundamentals on which we agree that we believe are the core teaching of the church. And there is the, you know, the pragmatic approach to where they're like, we want to make sure that we don't appear... We don't want to appear like we're divided on these issues because that will undercut our authority. Definitely. Especially they, I agree with you, except I told the story a million times, but the ways that uh, Russell M. Nelson, current prophet of the church has had his pet peeve be calling the church by its proper name since going back to the early nineties, and then the other, you know, uh, apostles and prophets like Monson and uh, President Hinckley, who were like, I love the name Mormon. It's the greatest name I ever heard. Mormon this, Mormon that. I'm a Mormon. Be a Mormon. Mormon campaign. Put it on a billboard. Pay a million dollars for it. And then the second that Russell Nelson gets in there, he's like calling the church anything that's a nickname removing the Lord's name. That's a win for Satan. And I was like, did you not hear the other guy that just died? Like his body is still warm and you're already like trampling all over everything that him and your last two prophets have said. And that is one of the most obvious ones where they've just obviously not been united on. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And like, just to uh, tip people toward the, the book, I, I think if you want to learn why I classify um, Russell Nelson as a vulture capitalist of Mormonism. You'll mm. have to read American Zion. Oh my gosh. You said you'd give me an exclusive copy. Of, I took a picture of your publisher. It's on my phone. I just got to email him and it's mine. <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, coming just in time for Halloween. So it's going to be a really spooky read, huh? Is that, it, is that's it... right. It'll, it'll trip you out. Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, I can summarize this part. So basically, okay. I tried to trace together that Mormonism became embedded with the American religious right starting the 1970s on. They did this through a, a series of, of successful, in their mind, ecumenical outreaches, usually on social political issues, whether it be opposing the ERA, opposing uh, second wave feminism, um, and therefore being part of this uh, religious right coalition, um, the silent majority, right? And two things come out of this. One is it gave Mormons a sense of cultural power and presence and acceptance that they had long desired. But second, it meant that there was a cultural entrapment. It meant that many people in the church are going to start seeing the LDS doctrines and practices and right-wing doctrines and practices as synonymous. And the boundaries between those two spheres are going to become increasingly blurry to the point to where some might have trouble declaring which allegiance that is, is more important to them. You see this play out in the pandemic when the LDS church leaders are like, you need to get vaccinated. You need to wear masks in church. And you have lots of members are like, but... Uh, um, Sean Hannity is saying I shouldn't, right? Or Donald Trump is saying I shouldn't. And so once you get these cultural overlap, that means there's going to be a competition of authority when those two things don't uh, work in tandem. And so to a way, the LDS Church has created this environment that undercuts their own authority. 
so that people like Tim Ballard can capitalize on this multi-decade effort of cultural assimilation to the point of where they can build enough cultural capital to rival Latter-day Saint leaders, which is why you have people on Twitter denouncing M. Russell Ballard for critiquing Tim Ballard. Right? Because yeah. now you are seeing religion through the political lens, which is the result of this uh, several generation on trajectory. Right, right. And that is, if there is any YouTuber, like Mormon YouTuber, Mormon apologist specifically that like makes content to a large audience, um, I don't know of one that, you know, can survive monetarily speaking who doesn't play to that audience, if you know what I mean, like word radio, like Kwaku used to be the head of like the BYU Democrats like a decade ago. And now the, he's off on there with Cardinalis and they're making fun of liberals with, you know, beanies apparently who live in Williamsburg, like uh, Johnny, Johnny Harris. And so everything is like an us versus them. We've got the right ideas on everything. So like Greg Matson's YouTube channel, channel, Seawick and, uh, you know, the others, the, the, the harem of those, those lads. Right. And it just doesn't seem like there's any, how can you monetize anything else in the Mormon sphere? If you want to talk about Mormonism, you also have to talk about being like super cool and conservative. And, and this, this was kind of one of the final points I made in, in that slate article where we don't know which direction Tim Ballard is going to go after this. But what we do know is that there is a script written for him. Yeah, there is something that he can follow. And you saw this in his what I believe is a carefully cultivated impromptu speech at the Boston Revolutionary uh, Monument, which he probably viewed as his, you know, uh, independence movie, a uh, president speech where he's oh, like, you think he, like he's planned what he was going to say. Oh, yeah. No, I think I think I think he knew what because he knew that this was going to go viral. Right. He's encouraging people to record it and send it to newsreel. He, it's like this is what's going to go viral. And he is following the script that you find many people say, don't trust the media. Yeah, um, there is a grand conspiracy against me. And you see this crescendo to where he starts his rant saying, I don't think the church is behind this. And he ends the rant by saying, I hope the church isn't part of this cabal. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's part of this grander conspiracy that I am the source of truth. Yeah. Everyone is out to get me. I'm the person who's who's the, the foundation of restoring uh, society to what it's supposed to be. And so, of course, these people are after me. Don't listen to them. And if Ballard wants, he can follow that uh, and, you know, have his own show on Twitter and make millions of dollars. Um or he can decide that it's best to try to, you know, maintain some type of kind alliance with faithful Latter-day Saint audiences. That's going to be what we see unfold over the next few months. Yeah, uh, I didn't think about it, that it was so calculated because I just, I mean, now that I think about it, he probably, I, I originally assumed that I'm like, bro, be real. Don't act like um, Russell Ballard is a grandfather to me and you can't just call him on the phone right now. You've obviously had a falling out. Obviously, you know, something was coming and perhaps you just didn't expect that, uh, that they were going to release this PR statement. But do you think he knew 
And he was like, I don't know. He got the phone call on the toilet. And then he's like, everyone to Boston. I need to show that I'm an American. Everyone film me while I rant. Well, I think he knew something was coming, right? Because he was forced to resign from Operation Underground Railroad a few months ago. At the same time that a number of other institutions, including Glenn Beck's Blaze, separated from him. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, he probably hoped that he could keep that stuff under wraps. Um, but he also knew that even if the accusations come out, he has, like I mentioned, the script of how to denounce the media because we've yeah. created these, these two media systems that rarely overlapped where if you are a part of some cultural sphere, you're not listening to the media on these types of, of world. Just like a lot of us, me in my liberal bubble, I've not exposed a lot of these ideas that are circulating in conservative media. A strong recommendation for uh, um, Jeff Charlotte's uh, book on the slow civil war coming in America, um, Mm -hmm. where he really, like you dig your hours into the heartland model people and understand what's going on. He dug himself into like the right wing MAGA evangelical world. And I need to dig myself in. I should have to go home for dinner. That's right. And he's like, we need to understand how these different spheres work because they're not talking to each other anymore. And Tim Ballard can take advantage of this. Now, whether he is going to now chalk up the LDS church to this corrupt, evil conspiracy, or whether he's going to try to find a way to continue to deny, right, live in this world of denial that the LDS church isn't actually behind it, or buy into this conspiracy that is this liberal liberal rogue spokesperson. Because if you know anything about the church, is that it allows rogue spokespeople to speak on behalf of the church. That's something that happens. Um, that we'll see what happens because he, he can follow. I mean, it's not like having accusations of sexual impropriety are going to disqualify you from being an elected Republican official. Um, so I think that uh, he is, he, Tim Ballard is the product of the several decade dalliance of right-wing Mormon culture and American far-right extremism. And so even with the LDS church announcing him, he is in a position uh, to where he can have a following, build a reputation, and perhaps still be elected senator from Utah. A concept of just a couple decades ago, thinking that someone who is denounced by the LDS church has a chance to win a statewide election in Utah would have been absurd. But that's how far we've come with the radicalization of the American right in which Mormonism or a large segment of Mormonism is fully ensconced. Yeah, I wish that they just would have gone back to being a cult with each other instead of a cult with this. And then they hate the other side because <laughs> it was it's really disheartening that I we were talking about um, the Mormonism changing over time. And now that this this hard right faction has such such a stronghold, especially after Donald Trump, I think that that it, it's like what what is his playbook in in olden times? I think that Mormons would have unified a little bit more together under their shared ideas that that we're all Mormon here together. But I don't know, with with the internet, with people these days who are just exposed to more information, it's a very much, you're either with us in this traditionalist view or you're against us. And again, if we're painting everything under this superstitious lens that Satan really exists and he really is, he has a plan to keep people in bondage, to enslave them. And then here are the set of ideas that they believe in. And again, we're talking about like those 
those kind of dog whistles and those, those check boxes of, of, of where you align with the things that I align with. And then, you know, that you're on kind of in the in group it's, it makes me, um, think back to the, the speech that he gave and the ways that you were like, yeah, he, he probably rehearsed a lot of those things. Cause I didn't think of it that way because there is such a, a lane that's been carved out and those things are extremely, extremely hard to counteract and reform. And the big thing I always like to talk about on my channel was a life-changing podcast that Bill Real did a while back um, of Cognitive Dissonance podcast that Bill Real did on his um, Mormon Discussions channel about a, a discussion between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson about religious dogma versus like secular institutional political dogmas, how things are reformed over time. And that changed my entire framework of how I see things, because there's just some people who just, they want to be continuing to be told the things that, that, that fill their sense of identity. But then if that identity, certain people, so a lot of people can, you know, believe in untrue things that still keep them alive. And no, no, nobody in our human race completely just dies because they have 100% bad ideas. We still eat. We still, we still operate, even if our frameworks are not completely true, obviously. And again, everyone has their biases, but if there's this, this schism with people like Tim Ballard, where the dogmas are, are so in like insular where they are not interested because again, all relates to anyone who's, who's not with us works for Satan. It's a very, very powerful, very powerful belief. My mom can make me cry if she says that to me about my daughter. <laughs> like says my daughter's possessed by the devil when she has a tantrum, completely superstitious beliefs about what is out to get them. And then that, that is infiltrated into the media can't be trusted that even, you know, the other people in your church can't be trusted. And then again, that where it comes in is, is how long is that, that lane going to keep going in that way where you, you can't even trust your own in-group of your own Mormons, your own people that you take the sacrament with. Um, I mean, in my home ward in Provo, Utah, my dad, the day that Trump won, he put a gigantic Trump flag on the side of his big cargo van and drove it the one block that's down the church. Cause obviously there's like seven churches on my block. And, and then, uh, one of my good uh, friends, who's a feminist professor at BYU, she went home and she got her own poster about something feministy. I can't remember. And she put a, she, she like, got out a sheet and a bottle of spray paint and came back to her car and into the church parking lot and parked it next to my dad. And they had like a good laugh about it, but truth be told, like, you know, people who are in this schism, they think that those types of Mormons, they don't want their kids being taught by them. Like they, they think they might be nice or whatever, but they have wholly taken on and eaten this, this rotten fruit of secularism of intellectuals and feminists. And trust me, if you're conservative listening to this, Kara, you're offending me. I used to be just like that too. <laughs> so I understand how it can come across, but I'm like, there's, there's this definite schism that is just doubling down and doubling down the farther down this, this, um, this superstitious rabbit hole that we go and where are the reforms? Where are we able to say, Hey guys, wake up without being told you work for the devil. Yeah, I agree. Cause, um, how, how long is that going to be sustainable for? Should we keep reading the article? I think we've covered most of it. I probably, we I wanted probably to read more. Didn't you talk about um, 
snuffers. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I talk in, I, I talk about how there are a number of different points of um, conservative angst over mainstream Latter-day Saint teachings and practices that we see, whether it be the stuffers and the remnant movement, the growing number of people who believe that Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy, and therefore this declension narrative that the church has kind of gone to hell since Joseph Smith's time. Um, also, this what I believe is absurd new conspiracy that it was the apostles that killed Joseph Smith in Carthage jail rather than the mob. Uh, these ideas that are not founded in history and are explicitly challenging traditional official LDS teachings show that there is a bit of a discomfort in certain segments of the LDS uh, community against the institution. Whether this will lead to a formal schism, it's unlikely. It takes a lot of work and a lot of outrage to formally separate and form a schismatic church, but the foundation is there for it to potentially happen. And perhaps the most important thing is the church leaders know this and they're concerned about and if anything we've seen over the last few years, um, they're more concerned to satiate the concerns of those groups of people than saying though than those on the more liberal end who are concerned over LGBTQ or race issues or social justice issues. Um, the, the church has seemed to be more interested in throwing, you know, life preservers at those in the Tim Ballard camp, which is what makes their denunciation of Tim Ballard all the more shocking. Wow. Well said. Why don't we read, uh, I just wanted to wrap up. Can I read the last line of this? Yes, please. It's do. always good to see how, you know, an author bids you adieu. Uh, let's see. Ben ends his article by saying, it is yet to be seen what the entire fallout will be, but whether or not Ballard publicly breaks with the church, the dispute is yet another example of conservative angst within an evolving church that continues to wrestle with how to control its members. Hmm. As the Latter-day Saint tradition remains firmly entrenched within American far-right circles, disputes over final authority, historical truth, and moral in, I can't read that word. Initiatives. Initiatives. It's behind this. Trust me, I can read. <laughs> will continue to be contested space. That is a damn good article, Ben Park. Well, thank you. I'm quite, I'm quite pleased with it. I will give a shout out to my editor, Rebecca Onion, who did a really good job helping me uh, formalize Ooh. my ideas. Uh, I also just wanted to say that we've had a couple super chats. Thank you for the five bucks. A. Johnson said, flashback to Ben's earlier bloodline comment being ambiguous. Fundamentalist Mormons, Kingstons, also do the bloodline from Christ. Very fundamental. Yeah, that that that's another one of those where I remember I know I mentioned this, it feels like five hours ago. This idea of live options of these doctrines taught mm -hmm. by previous prophets that just kind of lay fallow that the church doesn't want to specifically denounce, but they don't want to, you know, emphasize them either, which leaves those available for groups like the Kingstons, who already have this broader narrative of the church giving up or forfeiting core doctrines to therefore say, no, we believe in the core doctrines like polygamy, which the Kingstons do, like yeah. blood atonement, like yada, 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 and like the blood lineages. And they're like, it also shows a spectrum. Tim Ballard is also resurrecting those ideas, right? But he's mm -hmm. trying to do it in a much more 
respectable way, which I know sounds a bit ironic when talking about Tim Ballard, but he's not as, you know, in your face as the Kingstons are, which the Kingstons are, the LDS church is not teaching this now. This shows that they are corrupt and we are the true people. Whereas Tim Ballard is like, hey guys, this is part of this same canon. I'm going to be teaching this because it came from Latter-day Prophets. They're going to say, because it is lucrative. <laughs> that's right. That's the, that's the unspoken statement. Yeah. I mean, we could go on and on for days of things that the prophets at the time, mouthpieces of God, said that if this ever gets removed from the church, you will know that the church is in apostasy. And then the next leader's like, sorry, can't pick up your phone call right now. I have another call on the other line. It's to the American government saying that I have to become a state. Oops, I, I have to. I don't want to. But they won't let me bring my polygamy with them. Flip the daisies on that. Just had to abandon that entire core principle that's the economy of heaven. <laughs> and uh, st study, I want to see Mormon men with beards and Tim Ballard. You'll yeah, well, I mean, this Mormon man with the beard is not a fan of Tim Ballard. Um, but I mean, I do think Tim Ballard's look, if I can use that to springboard into a broader comment, I think Tim Ballard's look is him. very. What was that? Let's roast him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's this is leg day. First of all, go on. <laughs> I'd mentioned I'd mentioned earlier that he looks like he can have an Amazon Prime TV series. I mean that quite seriously because there is a type of look that fits into the middle age American man who believes that he can still get off of the couch and save the world. The Jack Reacher, the um, Jack Ryan, um, the whatever that Chris Pratt show was, Terminal List. I mean, they all look the same. They're clean shaven. They have the Under Armour hat. They have the tight fitting shirt. They look like they can bench press 300 pounds. And I think Tim Fowler is very careful about that. And so that, that image is part and parcel with his message. He's probably got a truck. Probably, probably got, got a hanging ball sack in the back. I know That's your true. whole thing. I know the archetype, Tim. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, do you know the the foundations of how everything with Operation Underground even started? That it's it started as as a pitch for a, a TV sh a series originally called like The Abolitionist through Glenn Beck. So before Operation Underground Railroad, before Tim wanted to actually go save kids, he wanted to be on camera. He was uh, working with Glenn Beck and various producers. Some of them have won Oscars and awards. And Glenn Beck really, really wanted this, this TV series to get going where he would, yeah, it's a crazy idea. Like, how do you ensure a show like that? You go into foreign countries and start waving guns around and playing Big Shot and rescuing kids. Like, yeah, I would watch that show if it didn't sound like incredibly immoral and frightening. <laughs> Uh, for all the participants involved uh, and uh, very little overhead and everything to be done kind of for the plot, for the show. And that's ironic because the entire Operation Underground Railroad has worked in tandem with different documentaries that they've made where having the film crew was more important there than actually finding the kids that they were looking for. Having a psychic medium that's uh, like a friend of Tim Ballard's that it's he also runs like six total nonprofits and the psychic medium runs Children Need Families nonprofit with his wife, Catherine. And I don't know why she, Janet Russin needs, you know, $5,000 a month to not tell us where Guardy Marty is in Hawaii or in, in Haiti, but we need a helicopter. That's for dramatic, a dramatic feature to the show. 
and uh, everything about how Tim Ballard has used the, the even people that he has saved as a, as a propaganda tool, kind of as a marketing to drum up more support and embellish things. It is, it's like a person who's running a, a TV show and even his own operatives have, I have all this in, in a future episode and um, on my Instagram post right now. Uh, one of his former operatives said in Haiti when they were looking for Guardy Marty that he was looking like an idiot. Tim was running around like a freaking uh, reality TV producer and the cameras are following him and causing a lot of commotion and attention with people who have guns and machetes and stuff. But that's cool. Like, that's cool. Like, that's badass to be like saving the kids and got your Under Armour shirt and you're off-roading up to this remote village. But then the story is the kid isn't there. There's, there's there's nothing to show for all of that that macho man promotion or anything. It's all just like, you know, a bunch of people with their arms crossed and like their heads down and it's all dark and it's like traffickers were coming for you. It's like you want to believe that, that, yeah, you're part of something where there's these these really strong American Mormon men who are led by God to fight the worst evil in the world. But that's just a narrative. That's just a story because it's physically impossible for Tim Ballard and his operation with the ways that he's done things, invoking the covenant as a way to solve this problem, using a Mormon psychic talking to Nephi to identify where missing children are. Mm -hmm. When they went to Haiti, it was the child had been kidnapped four years prior, never seen again. But all of this macho-ness that like Tim Ballard also said that in his uh, one of his Book of Mormon Evidence conference speeches, he just talked about miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle that happens. And you know how Mormon miracles are sometimes where they're just like a nice thing happened. <laughs> You're going that a miracle. It's like one female operative came to this training and look at this picture of her. Okay. Yeah. She's a nice looking blonde woman. I, I guess she's like 30 years old. She was 35 and she could play a teenager miracle from God. Things like that, where it's just miracle after miracle that, that well, we're doing I, the Lord's work. I think I have one final major point here. And then I think my mind is completely spent. Um, Thanks for spending it with us. No, <laughs> I think there's, there's a key message there that a core part of Tim Ballard's view is a re-enchantment of the world. And that's a term that scholars use. Re-enchantment. Re that the world has become too secular. It's become too distanced from spiritual things. And what they want to do is introduce miracles into the narrative again. And miracles mm -hmm. are about power. Miracles are about meaning. Miracles give validation to their actions. And so what Tim Ballard can offer is a world in which God still intervenes, notably on their specific political issues and so forth. Yeah. And so I think this is why it fits into this broader world of Denver Snuffer and others who are saying the church has become too formulaic. The world has become too dispirited. I am offering another connection to God, to the divine. And you can see the echoes of what, you know, Mormonism's earliest message was. And that's why it's, you know, a prototypical Mormon message, even if it is now being used against the Mormon institution itself. Wow. You just like recited an article to us. Isn't been the best? Gosh, you guys, please uh, give it up for Ben Park, you guys. Oh, thank you so much for sharing all of your brain cells with us today to talk about something that has sucked all of mine away this week and everyone <laughs> who's tried to make sense of this. 
Um, if anyone has any final questions for Ben while we get a, them you can get in a super chat or two if you, you really wanted to anybody. The last question, if I can use up one more brain cell, is is there anything else that you want to say about the... There's been a rumor going around. There's some people, whispers in the community that Tim Ballard is also just playing by like the Joseph Smith playbook. Do you want to expand on that perhaps? Um, only that... Joseph Smith's playbook has been played over and over again for 200 years. That Joseph Smith was, that this image of Joseph Smith confronting an apostate world and forcing change through this heroic man-god servant is something that was used. I mean, immediately after Joseph Smith dies, you have James Strang cosplaying as Joseph Smith. You have other people who crop up as the one mighty and strong. So, I mean, I already spoke a lot tonight about the script of the far right activists that uh, Tim Ballard can play off of. He can also just play the old Joseph Smith playbook. Um, and that means a lot both within the Mormon tradition as well as within um, the larger world of religious reformers and prophets. And so there is no such thing as the Joseph Smith playbook, right? There's only the Joseph Smith that is reformatted with every generation, with every believer to match their needs and resources. Wow. That's well said. I was going to go a little bit more cynical on the old, uh, you want to save the kids? Like in the article, <laughs> he's like, how far will you go for the kids? Will you, will you let me get in the shower with you? Cause the, the traffickers are just around the corner, AKA Satan. So like the only way that we can, can do the right thing that ensures the salvation of ourselves or the children is sexual relations. Sexual relations is what is necessary to accomplish this goal. I didn't make up the rules. It's called the couple's ruse. It's called, uh, it's called the new, uh, I hate when I'm stumbling on jokes on a live stream. It's called the new and everlasting covenant, higher law. It always has a name for it, but it usually involves some type of manipulation and grooming and story that's spun in people who are in vulnerable circumstances who don't really have any other options, but to use their bodies to be uh, complicit with the demands of positively viewed Mormon men. Or if they speak out, they will have a lot of problems in the community Hence, the women in the Vice article can't speak out. And they said that they live in fear. And I don't doubt that. Again, to go back to the macho thing, Tim Ballard will put you in the back of his truck and you'll probably have to go to Home Depot with him. Well, and he wouldn't have to do anything because he's got the devoted followers. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like one, like for, for freak's sake, like just when the church was even had the, that denouncement going on, like, you know, right-wing Mormon Twitter was losing their minds. And it just goes to show that, like, there's little to any semblance of reality when the church's own Deseret newspaper reprinted it. And they can't just, like, calm down, ask them questions first, <laughs> instead of assuming this is some gigantic smear campaign that, that journalists in a I've heard people say that Vice is just a failing newspaper and it just wants to make up this stuff. And I'm like, are they not still held accountable? They're like, there's no such thing as like libel laws or whatever. 
like there's just this other yes this fantasy world where everybody is out to get you anyway i think if you want to guess how quickly the church would act were a newspaper to publish a fake i know the church i was like that literally is this i've seen some strange things since like 2016 but that was literally i was like hold your horses guys <laughs> like it's it's journalism. It's journalism. It's in the church's paper too. They didn't take it out of context, you know, anyway, the Joseph Smith playbook though, seems, uh, ever present in the ways that men inside the Mormon church, if I may say so myself, often say, you know, what toots the, the way to solving the problem that is before us is, just so happens that some clothes need to be removed. Um, sexuality needs to be exchanged. If you say no, well, I know where your your uh, values lie. You uh, you want to further the cause of sex trafficking. If the sex traffickers came in here right now and they see us sitting on the couch, and instead of naked under the covers, our covers will surely be blown. So. Literally, uh, our covers will be blown. Mm, good pun. And I hope it's not the dirtier one. Anyway, <laughs> well, anything else you want to talk about? Somebody else said, uh, cannot wait to have you on um, after your book comes out. Where will it be available? It will be available where all books are sold. I always encourage people to uh, buy from independent booksellers like Benchmark Books, King's English, um, uh, it will be released January 16th from Live Right, the same publisher that did uh, my Kingdom Nauvoo book. And I'll I'll be out in Utah for a few uh, events. I'll have a book tour taking me to a number of uh, cities. And uh, I'll hopefully be visiting uh, the Nuance Ho Show again to, uh, once, once she reads the book and we can dissect it. Love to. I, if you can tell, remember how I started this podcast at the beginning? I was like, Kingdom of Nauvoo. I don't know who this Penn, Ben Park guy is. I didn't have a name with a with a face of the book, but I was like, this is some legit Mormon history writing. So pick up a copy of Kingdom of Nauvoo while you guys are waiting for the book is called again, The New American Zion. It's American Zion, A New History of Mormonism. I just said that in reverse. <laughs> and finally, somebody said that their stake president is encouraging a media fast leading up to general conference sure it has nothing to do with all the uh the recent negative press i guess i'll just have to print off copies of my show and hand it out door to door that's the way i do it if i know send that they're out, send out uh, uh excerpts of the newspaper like my parents would do when i was on my mission exactly <laughs> just a picture a still of me a screenshot and then 15 pages of text right right all right. Um, I'm going to wrap up by saying thank you so, so much, Ben. That article was amazing. I hope everyone goes out and reads it and shares it. This channel, totally funded by YouTube ads. That's true. But mostly cannot live without donors. So please, if you like this content, can't afford anything, that's fine. But thumbs up, they're great. Comments for the algorithm and subscribing to the channel. Always appreciated. Follow me on all of the places. I have a link tree. Links are down below as well. Donor box and Venmo. Because I run a 501c3 nonprofit, I have a board and everything, a responsible one. Unlike Tim Ballard over there, I read several books and I have a very legitimate operation running here. 
very legitimate people running this nuance hug foundation. You'd be very proud of how this comedian turned businesswoman really stepped up her game. So 501c3 nonprofit, everything's tax deductible in the United States, Venmo and donor box below. Any donations, I will love you forever and uh, recurring donations, especially. So I think that's my outro. Anything else you got left to say there, Benjamin Park? It's been a privilege to be on. Privilege to have you. Isn't he the best? I have been waiting forever. I had Shalice on this week and Julia and then Ben Park. This has been this has been better than Disneyland and Christmas combined. Thank you so so much. And I'll have to talk to you when you have your book come out or sooner. Anytime you want to come on, you're welcome. Thank you. You'll get All sick right. I will not. No one will. <laughs> All right. Love you so much, guys. Bye.